0: Put on your Venetian mask and take off all your clothes. That's how I podcast, Nick. What about you? And that's how I listen. That's how I record. You know, I picked the wrong episode to wear pants. I never wear pants when we're recording, Mm. and then I wore it tonight. Wrong movie. Uh, Wrong movie. I should fail again. Fail again. (laughs) Yes. Good thing I don't have the camera on while we remotely record this. This is Film Shake, episode 56 Eyes Wide Shut from 1999. The Stanley Kubrick joint. Our first Kubrick, the only Kubrick of the '90s. This is a this is a big deal for us. For me, at least. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's from my favorite year in cinema. So there's that. There you go. Favorite year of cinema, 1999. I had never seen Eyes Wide Shut, so this is an experience for sure. We'll be getting into that. Our full review later. First, we have to go to the Fallen Warrior review, where we talk about the punishment movie that you gave me from the last time, because I lost the trivia battle. Big shock. And what did you punish me with this time, Nicholas? I punished you with a 1983 Australian crime comedy action film that I saw on the Disney channel when I was a kid, because for whatever reason... Disney Channel, in the mid and late 80s, played a lot of Australian kids' stuff. It's BMX Bandits. Right. What's up with that? <laughs> right, This is like an Australian film. Why is this on yeah, the Disney Channel? Right. It's interesting. BMX Bandits, starring Nicole Kidman. Hey, man, i tell you what. Dot and the Whale? That was another Australian one from that time period. Didn't catch that one, no. Yeah, it's from 1986, so it came out the year you were born. It was an Australian cool. animated film. Just a baby. Yeah, yeah, where Dot goes into the ocean, this Australian character, and she meets Moby Dick and has all these adventures, and uh, it's amazing. I Well, I don't know. It might suck. I haven't watched it since, like, 1986. <laughs> Your six-year-old self enjoyed it, at least. Yeah, that's right. Something. That's right. Yeah, and I enjoyed BMX Bandits back then, too, but, Jordan, you're not six years old. What did you think about BMX Bandits now, in 2022? Right. Some good good crossover with eyes wide shut just a perfect pairing with that movie. <laughs> got the nicole kidman hey you've got the rubbery masks the creepy kind of you know elongated face masks where they're running and chasing these kids in the cemetery they've got pig mask at the beginning as they're what are they doing robbing a bank and trying to get away i don't know they're a, yeah yeah they're just snorting at each other there's a, there's a lot of just running and chasing and, and riding BMX bikes in this movie. So just lots of BMX bikes with laser sounds instead of, I don't know, full frontal nudity. So <laughs> other than that, it's just a quite quite similar to Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, yes. This is a not too great of a movie, I wouldn't say. I mean, Nicole Kim is is fine, I think, in her younger self here. Like, definitely showing potential. But it's just so cheesily made you know it's just like i said lots of laser sounds as the kids are doing the tricks on their bikes bright colors where everyone's just like you know they've got the one kid with the blue bike and he's got the blue track suit the other kid wearing the red tracksuit suit with the red bike lots of neon lots of bright colors um and yeah lots of bad adr australian accents <laughs> but yeah the the main plot of this is basically these kids find these walkie talkies You know, it's from the 1980s when the walkie-talkie is like the main MacGuffin of the movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they find these walkie-talkies that have a certain range or frequency where they can tap into police radio frequency. And these villains are trying to do some more bank robbing or do some other job, and they need these walkie-talkies, and these kids come upon them, and then they're chasing the kids. It feels just like one goofy like three stooges chase of these kids by these bumbling goons, like for an hour and a half. So uh I definitely got bored with it after a while where it's just like, okay, this is maybe mildly amusing because of the 80s aesthetic at first, but it just kind of wears its welcome by the end where we've seen like every possible way these kids could <laughs> evade the these goons in a car. And you know, finally like the whole bmx posse takes them out with like bags of flour and uh, a f- foaming bubble machine I don't know, it's just it's really goofy, not super entertaining but it's fun or it's a it, it's interesting at least to see nicole kidman uh at this young of an age and then you know how she would go on to do much more prestigious work Right. Yeah, you can tell just watching her in this that she was probably going to be big. I think that's, that was kind of this movie's claim to fame at the time was like, hey, the girl in this movie feels like she should be a movie star and not riding around on a BMX bike. But I don't want to sell the other people in this movie short, Jordan. I do dig like the friendship between the other two guys where they form... A little triad with Nicole Kidman, but PJ and Goose, these PJ two, and Goose, the yeah. two blokes, I really dig how one of them has like that awesome, like downer, sarcastic sense of humor where he's really self-deprecating. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I don't know, I, I think they have good chemistry and they have good chemistry with Kidman. And I always joke around about like having a crush on every attractive actress from the 90s. But I will say, going back to the 80s, Nicole Kidman was one of my first crushes. And, you know, being a little kid, I remember watching this like, that lady's pretty. But then when she would ride on the bike, I was like, she's not as pretty anymore. And that's because I find (laughs) out now reading the trivia for this movie that. They couldn't find a female stunt double who matched Nicole Kidman's proportions, as she's famously very tall. So they had to get a dude in a wig to do all her bike riding uh, stunts. So, oh man, <laughs> that explains that wasn't that. Kidman doing all those gnarly tricks. <laughs> Shucks, it was some dude that was apparently very embarrassed to be dressed uh, in her outfit, wearing <laughs> that wig between takes. She should have just learned the craft, man. Like just like she would. <laughs> you know just dedicate herself to kubrick for five years <laughs> making eyes wide shut she should have just learned that bmx bike man well apparently she did learn how to ride a bicycle just for this movie and you know and like the static slow pedaling shots it's her and the other two actors but apparently for the stunts it's all stuntmen. they didn't even risk anything with the three main stars here should have ridden that cycle like she rode the naval officer for those six days come on oh come on man come on <laughs> speaking of that and kinky stuff shout out to brian trenchard smith director of our favorites uh, night of the demons 2 and leprechaun 4 in space Yes, he, he directed so this good. kid's movie here and there's none of the crazy weird sex stuff from those two movies here but <laughs> you only w you, you kind of wish there was in a way <laughs> i don't know i guess if you like trash like me you, you would be like you're like where where is it man it's miss this is missing something oh yes the trash the trash <laughs> No, it's definitely a a kid's movie. There's nothing weird or sexual or or grotesque. Not at all. uh, Yeah. He'd go on to do much more interesting work, I'd say. Yeah, and I do think even with like his weirder, kinkier stuff that we were just talking about, there is like a good-natured sense of humor underneath. Like you know, a leprechaun bursting out of a guy's boner and killing him. There's like a good-natured like humor to a good-natured that. Good-natured humor to that. There's yeah. almost like an innocent sure. humor underneath that, and that is here in yeah. BMX Bandits. Well, it's childish for sure. So <laughs> I guess that that fits. <laughs> oh all right do you have anything else to say about bmx bandits do you have a score for bmx bandits uh two out of five i don't know all right i'll i'll go one up on that just because i have a little bit of nostalgia for it i'll give it a five out of ten but look since you're calling in from a payphone next to the snuff theater where you just watched it (laughs) how about we talk about 1999's eyes wide shut I'm trying to keep a low profile here outside this the snuff theater in my trench coat. Like I said, no got no, no clothes on, but I do have the trench coat on, you know, just so I'm not too conspicuous. Right. Whenever we were finishing up our last episode, and you announced that we were going to cover this, as this is your pick you mentioned your kind of early thoughts about the film whenever you were 13 and it was released. Would you care to kind of talk about that again, how you kind of looked at the film as something kind of dirty that you had to stay away from? Right. It was definitely like a dirty taboo thing. I feel like all the adults I knew around me that were aware of it, at least, were just kind of like, uh, like this creepy erotic thriller, like this just kind of this dirty kind of snuff kind or of porny kind of movie that any young child should stay away from. Which, you know, I would agree, this movie is not for young children, unlike BMX Bandits. Uh, <laughs> so don't get confused, kids. If you tuned in for BMX Bandits, you're like, oh, I should watch Miss Kidman in, in the <laughs> 1999 movie. <laughs> so it, it definitely had this kind of reputation. And I feel like overall, that's probably why it didn't do as well. In America, just American sensibilities as far as like sex and nudity goes in movies is, you know, a little bit more standoffish or a little bit more like taboo for our culture. Whereas this movie did really well in Italy, (laughs) like big surprise, you know, (laughs) or like in Europe or the UK, it just seemed like it was more widely accepted in other parts of the world. Right. You couldn't do a private browser movie theater screen when you went to the movies. So everyone knew that you were buying a ticket for this when you announced it at the box office. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to shout out one of our listeners right now, Sebastian from France, who always hey. sends us He sends us the most delightful emails. And yes. uh, he, he called out the fact that I can remember basically every day of my life and said, is Nick autistic and you know what it's called hyperthymesia it's I, I, it's not my fault that i can remember everything that ever happened to me you know what though that doesn't mean i'm not autistic but you know it's a that's a totally separate thing and i just right. want to say the day that this movie came out uh july 16th 1999 i do remember like it was yesterday i can tell you everything that i did i was in wow. a- i was in arizona wow. on a road trip wow. my family went to the west we drove on I-10, all the way to Interstate 8, all the way to the Pacific. Uh, We were originally going to the Grand Canyon, and I said, Pop, if we just drive, like, another 12 hours, we can get to the Pacific, and you've never seen it, right? So let's just do it. And we, you know, we went on, like, this two-week-long trip. So I was at the Grand Canyon on July 16th, 1999. That's ridiculous, Nick. (laughs) That's just insane that you remember this stuff, man. Now, were you on this family trip? And happen to see Eyes Wide Shut with your family? Is that is that what this <laughs> is leading up to? How did your mom appreciate the Venetian mask? No, I bought a USA Today every day of that trip, which the most famous one was three days after this, that because JFK Jr. died, I believe, on July 19th of that year. But, yeah. I, you know, I bought the one for July 16th, which I still have all of these, and... I remember reading the review of Eyes Wide Shut and that. All that to say, yeah, so I was on a trip then. But, Jordan, I did watch the movie shortly after when it debuted on Premium Movie Channel. And I've talked at at length about being a teenager, even in my late teens. You know, it's late at night and everyone's in bed. And there's a certain thing you're looking for. You know, I saw Eyes Wide Shut is on. That's about to start. Let me. I knew I can get what I need from this. And, you know, I did very early in the film. Uh, I left the room for 15 to 20 minutes uh, for certain reasons. And then I came back in and said, what what the hell is happening in this movie now? I don't I don't understand. Like, did I miss that much screen time? And then I fell asleep also due to the activities that I left the room for probably and passed out. So I never saw the rest (laughs) of the movie until prepping for this episode. Now we're old. Uh, I'm turning 41 in two days after this recording, and you're getting close to 40. Hey, uh, we've watched eyes wide shut now as older people. Yes. What, what the hell is this thing, Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's something to definitely talk out and parse out. Like I said, I feel like it's and it requires that for sure. Uh, I did want to mention developing this Kubrick you know, like I said, had optioned this forever, had once considered doing this as a comedy with Woody Allen or Steve Martin. What do you think about that idea? There'd be more laughs in this movie. More than the zero times that I laughed uh, watching (laughs) it now. Right. Uh, It's a very serious movie, you know, very serious, very tense at times, dreadful at times. So imagining this as a comedy with Kubrick's kind of dark sense of humor, I can definitely see how it could go that way. And then putting somebody like Woody Allen in this, making it more neurotic and zany. Like I can, I can imagine a version of this, but I don't know. it It's just such, I don't know. It's such like an iconic thing in its own right. It just, the imagery from this and just, you know, the notoriety of uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, a married couple at the time apparently going through their own struggles and then just dedicating themselves to this director. Like as some critics I've seen talk about this being like the most prostrate actors have ever been, you know, at the feet of this director, just this great director, I must, you know, no matter what the project, I will devote myself to this man and, you know, his acclaim and everything. So I don't know. It's, yeah, it's just such a, an interesting project thinking about this as his last movie, him dying just a few days after he showed, apparently, the final cut to Warner Brothers, just kind of the mystique and mystery around this whole movie. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting to finally kind of dive in and, and look at this from the historical lens and from just, like, what is this movie? What am I watching? <laughs> yeah, and Kubrick is... I don't know, for me, I'm in a weird spot with Kubrick because, you know, I'm probably a lot more down on him than a lot of people who like to watch movies. His sensibility hasn't always clicked with me, but at the same time, 2001 A Space Odyssey, one of my favorite all-time movies. I love Dr. Strangelove. Wes from Real Talk heard me slagging Kubrick and said, hey, have you seen Barry Lyndon? And I said, no, and he said, <laughs> he sent me a copy in the mail. <laughs> Oh, wow. Really? So, yes, he did. So thanks, Wes. You watched Barry Lyndon? Yeah, Wes, I watched it. And you know what? It does what I like Kubrick to do. It's got a lot of great imagery, and I, I like his sense of humor, which you don't get from him in all of his movies. Definitely not in Eyes Wide Shut. But I like the yeah. dark humor in that movie. I enjoyed all three hours of it. I thought it was pretty good. So, I think I'm like Kubrick agnostic, because the stuff from Kubrick I don't like, I, I'm not a fan of. And it's stuff that a lot of people do like. I won't get into which ones that is. But yeah. uh this movie, well, let us talk about it because this one fits in a, its own place in my uh hall of Kubrick. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah, just to jump off there, I am a fan of Kubrick. Oh yes, I'm I'm sorry for not asking. That was uh right. that was really <laughs> narcissistic no, of me. No. Hey Jordan, what do you think about Kubrick? <laughs> No, I am a fan of Kubrick. I've been doing a retrospective of his work uh, through the library this year, just watching some of his early films that I had never seen before. So starting with Fear and Desire, and we went up through Dr. Strangelove to kind of top it off, which I'd say Dr. Strangelove is probably in my top 10 like favorite movies of all time. Just really love his sense of humor. And just the fact that throughout his career, he chose you know, to do different types of projects. So it's like, at one hand, he's kind of hard to pin down as a director, but he has such a sense of style and, you know, such a sense of like perfectionism and certain trademarks of his work that even though he's genre hopping through most of his filmography, you can see just like his own imprint on everything that he does. And that's really fascinating. So, uh you know, he decides to make a comedy with Dr. Strangelove. And it's one of the best comedies ever made. You know, he decides to make a horror movie with the shining and it's one of, you know, the most acclaimed horror movies of all time. So for the most part, I'd say he definitely like knocks it out of the park for me, but there's a lot of his movies that I haven't seen in years. I uh, fell asleep watching Barry Lyndon with our friend, Jonathan Peterson, like years back. So that's definitely one I need to revisit. Yeah, for sure. I'm not going to say anything else in regard to what you just said. Cool, man. Hey, Let's get into the plot of the longest continuously shot movie at 400 days, <laughs> which is no surprise to to Kubrick. I mean, you know, just going out on this last movie, where it's just like, it's going to be the longest movie. It's going to take the longest that any movie has ever taken to shoot this movie at like 15 months of straight shooting. It's insane. So yeah, let's, let's get into the plot. Let's get into the opening here. So... You know, we meet Bill, played by Tom Cruise, uh, Bill Harford, who is a doctor, and his wife, played by Nicole Kidman. They have a young daughter, Helena, who's seven years old. And it's Christmas time, and they're going to a Christmas party at a very uh, rich friend's, like, mansion, palatial mansion, looks like, played by Sidney Pollack. And his name is Victor Ziegler here. And uh, what did you think about the the opening scene the party and just well I guess the opening in their apartment in New York it's this is supposed to be New York obviously, but uh, it's a fake New York because Kubrick was apparently afraid to fly and they just built giant sets of New York to recreate. Greenwich Village and different places. So, yeah, what did, what did you think about this opening? Yeah, I've got some stuff to say about the New York thing later on. So, yeah, the, the opening of the movie, I tell you what, you go to Eyes Wide Shut with all the marketing for it and all the hype. The title comes on the screen. Nicole Kidman drops her dress, and that's how the movie starts. So, right. <laughs> very first shot of the movie. Yep. But, you know, watching it now, since now that I've seen a naked woman in real life since then, <laughs> I like how. Cruz's first line in this film, because they're getting ready to go to this party. He says, honey, have you seen my wallet? So it's like kind of positing him as a materialist. Like the first thing that he mentions is his wallet. But then the first yeah. images of Kidman are her nude and getting ready where it kind of like posits her as more of a sensualist, which mm-hmm. I feel like that takes on a greater meaning when they have a fight later where... Cruz minimalizes female desire. And she says, if you men only knew. So I feel like you get the seeds of that in this opening scene and they go to the party. And I do like the kind of dreamlike atmosphere. I know he used some older film stock, you know, whatever reason, I guess he, he had a vision in his head of this movie looking a certain way. So I do like the kind of like gauzy twinkly look of this party, but I also like the way that it is a weird mirror of a scene that happens later on. That's interesting you brought up the wallet. I thought that was such a specific like the way that the wallet is kind of hidden on his bedside table but she knows exactly where it's at. Thought it was like an interesting like specific detail for a married couple. It seems so familiar and it's so mundane but I don't know it, it does capture something about both their characters I feel like. I think this is one of the few clips that I had seen from Eyes Wide Shut Someone had shared online just like the use of the diegetic music here where the classical music is playing over this whole scene. And then right before they leave the apartment, Tom Cruise goes and turns off the stereo and the music stops when he turns off the stereo. And I always thought that was really like interesting use of music in the movie. Yeah, that was a nice touch. And so we get into some attempted seduction here where she's getting drunk. They don't really know anybody at this party, except for Tom Cruise happens to see an old friend from medical school, Nick, who is now a piano player, and he goes to talk to Nick. Nicole Kidman hangs back, and she's just drinking champagne like a fish, and she starts to um, dance with this Hungarian man who's obviously got the hots for her and trying to seduce her and talking her up like, have you read Ovid's art of the poets, or art of love or, you know, and stuff like this. And I guess we could talk about the performances here too. Like, what did you think of Kidman playing drunk here in this scene? And I guess we could lump into that question later on. She has to play high. Uh, How did, how did you feel about her performance in that respect and, and Cruz too, because he gets high as well. Man, I love Kidman as an actress. I think she's great, but there are two things here that kind of bug me. The first is I really feel like her American accent in this movie is one of the worst uses that she's put to screen of an American accent. It feels a little unnatural, and it feels even more unnatural when she's trying to speak Stanley Kubrick's dialogue. So mm-hmm. uh, it it's not my favorite thing that I've seen from her. And I don't leave this movie thinking like that was a standout performance From Nicole Kidman, like uh, the performance that she puts in in Dogville a few years after this, I enjoyed a lot better. I also want to point out that the piano man is Todd Field. Right. Which actually uh, is a filmmaker like uh, Sidney Pollack is and actually is a, a director whose work I enjoy more than Cooper's. In the Bedroom and Little Children, two of my favorite movies from the 20 or the aughts, the 2000s. Great movies. okay, nice. I have not seen either though, so I'm not super familiar with his work. I enjoyed his acting here to comment on my own question. I don't know. it was weird i I felt like in some respects, she did okay playing drunk or playing high at times it felt a little over the top or or just too much, like just putting on too much. I didn't have any issue with the accent i didn't it didn't really come to mind or it didn't like trigger my critical eye at all but there's something about her playing drunk in that that first scene where it's just like it feels a little fake but then later when you know they return from the party and it's like the the next night they're in their bedroom smoking weed and they're getting high there's something about her like pacing and the way she is telling This confessional story of like her fantasy she's had of this naval officer and everything. I found it so mesmerizing. Like I was just just glued to the screen, like waiting for each word. But at the same time, it feels a little of the same ilk of like being a little over the top or like acting too much, just like the drunk scene. So I don't know. It was just like an interesting comparison between the two or it's like they're both kind of over the top but one really worked for me and the other one was just like okay I'll I'll just kind of get through this it didn't really like take me out of the scene too much but I, I couldn't say it was like the best acting or anything no I actually thought and I think overall Kidman is probably a slightly better actor than Tom Cruise but I thought that he outclassed her in this movie for whatever reason yeah I would say the same as well. Like usually, I would I would consider her more of like an actor's actor, right? Like she's Academy Award winner Nicole Kidman, and yeah, she has like a prestige about her. Whereas Tom Cruise is usually just like you know he's Mission Impossible and he's in a lot of more like action oriented movies. But I'd say he's really good in this. He's and yeah, even better than her. But of course, I mean, we get to see a lot more of him as well. Most of the movie is from his perspective, outside of when we cut back and forth between the two of them at this dance. Because while she's having sweet nothings whispered in her ear. And I'll tell you what, if you you watch this movie with headphones, because I watched it a few times uh, for this. And one of the times was on my cell phone, which would have been Kubrick's nightmare. <laughs> Roll it over the grave. Right? Yeah. This guy's voice. Was really like, I felt like he was trying to personally seduce me. So, right, right. I didn't love that. He's very, he's an older gentleman, but yeah, he's very suave for sure. Yeah. And then we cut to Cruz and Pollock. And Pollock, we find out real early on, he's a scuzzball. He, yeah, he's with his wife at the beginning where he compliments Kidman on her looks and then says, I don't say that to everyone. To which his wife says he does say that to every woman, but. He has left his wife for the party and he's with a much younger woman, maybe doing drugs with her, but she's definitely doing drugs and has OD'd and is naked. Yeah, just straight up, like, flat out naked, I guess on the toilet or yeah, in the bath. They're definitely in the bathroom because Kubrick loves bathrooms. Before this, I would say also we should note Bill or Tom Cruise is arm in arm with two models who were aggressively trying to seduce him. And they're like leading him away to the rainbow room or somewhere like this. And they're like, Don't you wanna know where the end of the rainbow is? He doesn't seem to be rallying against this. Basically kind of along to the ride, like, oh, like he seems forlorn when he's torn away, basically, because he's this affair is interrupted by uh Sydney Pollack or by somebody calling, you know, saying Sydney needs you. And then he's pulled away from these two models. But you have to wonder if the interruption wasn't there, would he have gone with gone along with it? Whereas we have Kidman being you know aggressively seduced by the Hungarian man, but she makes the choice like I I need to step away. I'm married. I'm drunk. I need to back off before we make any poor choices here. So. She's not interrupted. You know, she doesn't get the easy out, but she has to make the hard choice. Whereas you could basically say this whole movie is Tom Cruise trying to have an affair, but is unsuccessfully interrupted <laughs> at every you know step of the way. It did make me wonder, though, has he done this before? Like, does he routinely cheat on Nicole Kidman? Because I'm sure this isn't the first high society party that they've been to. They have a daughter who's probably virgin on around 10 years old or so. So they've been together for a while. It seems really natural for him to just wander off with two models and expect that he's about to have a three way. So, yeah, he seems very comfortable in that situation. And later, I don't know, later in the bedroom when they're smoking weed, she confronts him a little bit and was like, who who were those women you were with? Like, where did you go off and did you screw them? And the way he responds seems so slimy. And he it feels like he's definitely putting on a mask that he's familiar with, of of putting on this kind of talk of just like, no, honey, like it I wasn't flirting, like I love you. You know, all the all the kind of sweet nothings he tells her there, it feels very much like part of a routine. So yeah, that, I feel like that's a good question. Like it, it, you wonder if he, if he has cheated on her before, but they don't really give you that information. Yeah, I feel like his extreme reaction to her telling him that she fantasized about being with this other guy, for some reason that too made me think like, I don't know, that that's kind of feels like a stereotypical philandering narcissist type person who's like, I can do whatever I want, but what you thought about another guy, how dare you? And the characterization of Cruz's character here isn't actually really that strong, which I think was probably on purpose. Like you can't really define him that well, as far as who he is other than uh, as reacting to this. Right. He's, he's not so much of like a protagonist or a hero in any sense, but he's just kind of being acted upon for most of the movie and responding to, various strange events but i mean he's he's also definitely like making choices or like trying to pursue an affair at multiple turns and then it being interrupted and then he has to make the choice like okay maybe this is a bad idea so he has some morality to him where he's kind of torn he's back and forth uh, throughout the whole thing what did you think about this argument that they have after the party about what has transpired at the party because you mentioned before kind of buying kidman's acting here more and being mesmerized which i think the camera work definitely adds to the camera is almost drunk kind of moving around with kidman you know being in her underwear here yeah because uh, someone's almost always in a state of undress in almost every scene in this movie it feels like but what did sure. you th- what do you think about this argument did it feel like a natural husband wife argument to you? It did. I mean, there was some something familiar about it where especially the whole like okay, he's he's kind of put his own foot in his mouth where she accuses him so you're saying that a man can only come on to me because he's interested in sex or they can only notice me because he's interested in sex whereas like a woman wouldn't do that and yeah, he naively says, "Well, yeah, women are—that's just not their nature. They're—they're they're more, you know, faithful. You know, they're just kind of more. They—they don't think like men think." Which she calls him out on, and that's the whole reason she tells him the story about her her fantasy with the naval officer, just to kind of prove a point. So, yeah, I, I thought there was some familiarity to it, and just some of like the some of those just like hard late at night maybe you're not in the best head space you're you maybe you're drunk or you know you've had too much uh in this case they've had too much weed but it's just kind of like oh man i can see how how bad this is going like this is going downhill you should just stop you know you should just call it a quits but you just kind of let it keep going and it just turns into a horrible mess so yeah i i, I did feel like that was a really well done scene and and depicted kind of the state of their marriage and the state of his, I guess, masquerading as, like, the good doctor, you know, whereas, like, he definitely has a darker nature, as we see. Yeah, for sure. I think the gist of the argument is pretty natural, but the dialogue didn't quite feel natural to me, but that's kind of an issue I have with basically every Kubrick movie. Dialogue has never been his strong suit to me. It kind of reminds me of my other I don't know what else to call it my other shit take which is you know Tarantino is not necessarily my favorite and I told you about like the glass breaking where all of a sudden I heard all the characters just speaking in his voice and now like I can't stop like every one of his movies I hear the dialogue and it just sounds like him talking I do kind of feel that way with the dialogue here with Kubrick too it's not terrible but there is something a little robotic about it that doesn't quite feel natural to me I almost wonder Like I, I watch a lot of these scenes and I, I almost feel the amount of takes that they must have been put through making this like the roboticness and like the just tiredness of the acting at times or just like the weirdness of the way they're saying things it's like are we on take 96 and they're just <laughs> like let me just try this like in another voice or in another way, you know, it it just, you almost feel the strain of the production as you watch this. I agree 100%. And I have something deeper to say on that. Once we get to the orgy, (laughs) Um, there's an orgy coming up, everybody. If you haven't seen this movie before (laughs) big surprise. Yeah. (laughs) yep. So after this, I call this kind of the out in the underworld part of the movie where Bill leaves home and he's haunted by the visions of her affair as he's riding in the taxi. He's going off to see a client's. Her father has died. What did you think of this scene where he's with this lady, Marion, and then, I don't know, There, there's just like this kind of like oddness about this conversation or just kind of, it's just kind of banal and you're at this deathbed of this guy you don't really know and this woman you don't really know and they're they're talking and Kubrick definitely just like doesn't cut anything out it's very much just like here we are in this moment and it's just usually all one take and one shot but then all of a sudden she kind of tries to seduce him and confesses her love to him and he's not really into it and he's got to leave and then her boyfriend shows up This guy named Carl, who looks a lot like Tom Cruise, which I thought was interesting as well. He's a lot taller than Tom Cruise. He is taller. He is taller. You definitely see Tom Cruise's height, especially standing next to Nicole Kidman throughout this movie. He's he's a short man. They don't hide it as well as they do in other movies. Though the actor's name is Tom, it's Thomas Gibson, who to me is most, uh, I remember him most from Chicago Hope, which I watched back in the 90s, and also from Darman Gregg which, you know, we had Dharma back in the Can't Hardly Wait episode, Jenna Elfman, a few weeks or weeks, a few months ago. And here we have Greg, but he's playing a much different role than Greg in Eyes Wide Shut. But he doesn't really do a lot in this movie. He's kind of just there to be an an object in relation to his girlfriend, kind of an impediment there in a way, though. Yeah, it's a weird scene. She's just start saying, I love you to him, like repeatedly. I love you. I love you. And I thought it was weird it's probably my least favorite scene in the movie to be honest yeah yeah i would would say say i feel like yeah and i feel like kubrick himself kind of comments on the absurdity when tom cruise is like we've literally never had a conversation that wasn't centered (laughs) around your father who is my patient so this is a little weird i felt like the actress did a good job there expressing emotion she starts to break down and just cries so she did a good job in that respect. But yeah, even watching this for the first time, I was like, this is a weird scene in this movie. I don't know what the scene is really doing here. What you know? Why do we need this exactly? But it's basically to get Bill out of the house, away from his wife, and then now he can kind of go on this nighttime journey through seduction and jealousy. Right now he has an excuse of, of where he's been which is right. that he's been helping out with this, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. I, I had to stay at their house until 4 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> till the sun came up, you know. <laughs> so he does go on a journey here through a New York that's quite unfamiliar to me. I've been in New York several times now, and I guess... I'll feed into this on something I'm going to say later, but I did say I was going to mention New York here. Kubrick goes through all this trouble because he doesn't want to fly to recreate these streets from New York, like exactly, right? To the most minute detail on like the measurements and right. the width and length. Sent guys over to the real New York to measure the width of the street and the placement of vending machines. <laughs> right. But kind of the technician's artifice here with Kubrick that I generally don't enjoy. And you could say, well, it's, it's supposed to be like a dream. Okay, fine, whatever. But yeah, if you walk around down any street in Manhattan at any time of day, it's loaded with people. Like, I've walked down the street at 3 a.m., random streets anywhere. There's people everywhere. Right. There's no one down the streets, any of these streets, at night. Like, they're almost always empty. Of At one point, he gets stalked. I mean, that took me out because I'm like, this already feels wrong. Like, it feels fake. Like, what was the point of going through all the trouble to get like every cobblestone correct whenever the actual lived in feeling isn't there. So that kind of bothered me. Yeah. It it took me out as well, watching it like there's shots where he's obviously walking in front of a green screen or like rear projection and it just looks weird. And then, yeah, the streets just have this kind of fake look to them. Whereas I feel like we see in other work by kubrick especially like his early work he's got the movie killer's kiss which is all shot in new york like documentary style like gorilla style where they didn't have permits to shoot they just went out and found like the awesomest looking grungiest new york you know night. this is 1950s new york i don't know you just you're missing some of that like real life grit and grime that new york gives you i don't know yeah i could see the argument too about like this is all the dream or it, it matches the themes of like artifice and what is real and what is not real and that kind of stuff but yeah it, it just had me really like kind of bummed that we didn't have like a real new york with kubrick's like awesome cinematography to match it so at this point bill is out on the street and he's come on by a prostitute named domino he takes her or she takes him back to her place and they agree upon you know how much money this will cost and just some overall flirtation they start kissing they're about to get into it when once again his tryst is interrupted by a phone call so it's usually always like a phone call or somebody walking up and be like sorry you're needed over here (laughs) anytime he's attempting to have sex in this movie But yeah, he gets a call from his wife and she's wondering where he is and you know when he'll be home. And that just kind of, I guess, ruins the mood. So he calls it off. What did you think about this scene? I like the transactional nature of the scene where he's focused on the, the money comes up a lot. There's not yeah. like a lot of passion from him in the scene. And I like even with him having a cell phone in the late 90s, it's not like that big of a rarity, but it's still kind of like, a lot of people would have had a beeper instead at this point with moderate means, so it's kind of showing like his status again, like uh, his sort of, I don't know, consumerist nature, or whatever you want to call it. So I, I thought the scene was pretty good, and I thought the actress did a good job of kind of giving off this enigmatic vibe, which I, I think one of the best things about this movie is that everyone feels like they're a little bit not trustworthy, like a little... A movie that I honestly enjoy more than this, The Game by David Fincher, where Mm. Michael Douglas is in this real-life game and he can't really trust anyone and everyone is just a little off. I feel like one of the better aspects of this film is that it kind of contains some aspects of that as well. So I thought that Vanessa Shaw did a really good job of exuding that as Domino. I thought she was pretty good here and she plays against Tom Cruise well. I'm glad that you mentioned the actress's name cuz uh, I couldn't find it off off the cuff but it's interesting that you brought up the game too because that's definitely a movie that I thought of especially toward the end where we get some of the reveal so yeah let's let's definitely circle back to that but yeah as far as the scene goes I, I thought it was well done again it was definitely you know just as a married man watching this in hoping for the best for your main character you're just like come on man are you really going to go into this grungy looking apartment with with this random girl and have this affair and you know pay for sex like you see the jealousy or the hints of the jealousy like okay he's he's struggling with these visions of his wife and the naval officer and then just to kind of be pulled along by this girl like hey you you know he's he's not really like, he's just acted upon, like I said, like he just kind of comes across random characters and he's pulled into these kind of subplots at times. And he just kind of goes with it. So it does show his character in that way where he doesn't feel like he has a whole lot of agency and that's maybe on purpose just to kind of show like the slimy moral ineptitude <laughs> that he's, he's dealt in life. But I don't know. It's just like, oh man, are you going to make this choice? And then finally decides not to so it did build a little tension for me there which i felt like was well done which was like kind of keeping you glued to the screen wondering what was going to happen next i'm with you on that i think one of my favorite another one of my favorite aspects of this movie is maybe kubrick now in his older age having been married for a while there's something with kidman here that gets alluded to a lot which is that tom cruise has a lot in his life, that is good. I mean, all he's basically showing Kidman, who is probably shown nude more than anyone else in this movie. I don't even think anyone in the orgy is shown nude this much. He's showing, like, right. A, this woman is very physically attractive, but B, she has a chance to be unfaithful to him with a man who's far more char- charming. And uh, more interesting than he is. And she's straight up like, nah, I'm married. You know, even though my husband is off cavorting with two models. And she apparently knows about it because she mentions it later. She doesn't cheat on him. And she's obviously a pretty good mom to their kid. She's doing all the homework while Tom Cruise is just wandering around. So he really has a lot to lose here. And I think that's something that Kubrick does a great job of is showing, like, this guy's going on this weird whack journey Meanwhile, like he has this back home and he's just ignoring it. Right. It kind of goes into the title of the movie. Good to kind of discuss that. Definitely open for interpretation. But one of the meanings that I found looking into it was Eyes Wide Shut being how a person refuses to see something in plain view, you know, because of preconceived notions of what that something should look like or this relating to naive people you know it definitely refers to sexuality in the movie and female sexuality i'd say and their refusal uh at least this reading that i have here the refusal of the protagonist to see that women can have both sexual fantasies and substantial sex drive but i feel like it definitely goes into that aspect of what he has at home and what he has in his wife and just like his eyes are wide shut to that like he's just you know he's focused on his own sexual obsession or he's focused on, you know, some sort of like comeuppance in feeling jealous about her fantasy. Like you said, very narcissistic in a way where it's like you had this fantasy and you felt really bad about it and you felt really torn up about it. And you're being, on, you know, the main thing is, like, she's being honest and confessing herself and, like, her, you know, her true nature. Yeah, she's kind of revealing it to him as a proving a point in in the midst of this fight. But it's not until the very end that he's truly honest with himself or with her. But, you know, she's just kind of laying it bare for him. And he's just, I guess, choosing to only dwell on the jealousy and only dwell on like his own sexual satisfaction. Right. If you're a follower of the Gottman Institute, in order to help your marriage, the Gottman Institute is very heavy on turning towards, which is noticing if your spouse is making a turn towards you as a bid for your attention. And obviously her confession here is that he's off cavorting with these models earlier and really not paying her much mind And we're shown, obviously, he's, like, worried about his wallet whenever she's undressed in front of him earlier. So it's kind of like a bid toward him, like, hey, you know, like, I I have had fantasies about other people, but I'm here with you. I could have cheated earlier. And he does the opposite of what the Gottmans would tell you to do, in that he turns away from her and goes on this sojourn without her. Yeah, it's definitely, like I said, focused on his perspective and his whole journey of, like, turning away from her and pursuing these other means talking about all the interruptions like multiple interruptions as he's pursuing different affairs what do you make of that like as far as like just coincidence or you know is that just like too easy for the film to give him an out multiple times like he never consummates you know sex with anybody else except for his wife throughout the whole thing so i don't know yeah what did what did you make of that I thought it was interesting because you talked about him not having much agency in the movie. And it's kind of weird. The film sort of puts him into these situations where he does nothing and all these beautiful women are falling into his lap and falling all over him, but he also does nothing for them to fall out of his lap either. So again, right. Them coming upon him is happening to him and them going away from him is kind of happening to him. Right. So what do you I guess it's like the question is what is that? say about his character necessarily i guess just he's kind of spineless or he doesn't have much moral agency yeah he's just kind of going through life or it, at least on these nights it, it's just like life is happening to him but it's just i don't know it's it's coincidental that yeah they just come, he come upon he comes upon these women but then they're just kind of pulled out of his reach as well he he makes really no choice here i don't know i don't know if that was even on purpose <laughs> Right. From here on out, like you said, orgy scene coming up. We see Nick at the jazz club. He had told him about the Sonata Club where he's been playing piano at the party scene at the beginning of the movie. So Bill seeks him out here and he learns about the secret meeting where Nick plays piano blindfolded. But the the blindfold wasn't always on. He could see these beautiful women. And of course, Tom Cruise is enticed and wants to know more about this he finds out the password to get into the party which is film shake i mean fidelio (laughs) (laughs) almost film shake almost film shake i thought he was gonna say it uh, kubrick knew, prophetic kubrick would have predicted film shake but no yeah so we (laughs) then we we get into definitely the most standout atmospheric creepy sexual explicit scenes of this movie, maybe of 1999. So uh yeah, mansion. He's brought in. he's whoa, whoa, at whoa, first, whoa, 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 whoa you, First, yeah, yeah, first. Before we get into that, yeah, he's got to go get his costume right. Don't skip the most WTF scene of the entire movie, where he goes <laughs> this to is this true. He finds that you've got to wear a mask to go to this orgy. So he goes to this costume shop that a patient of his used to own. It's owned by someone else now. He basically tells them, I'll pay you a ton of money if you just let me in and get me a costume. So they do this. They're in the store. The owner comes upon his daughter, his young teenage daughter, played by Lily Sobieski, who uh, I have mixed opinions on Lily Sobieski, but I have some really mixed opinions on her presence in this scene where (laughs) she's with two adult Asian men and engaged in some type of sexual act. And the owner of the store is like, what are you doing? And yelling and it's weird and kicks the guys out. But then later on, there's another scene where he seems to be permissive or whatever is going on with him. That's kind of weird. I don't know if like maybe he was like, I, I didn't get my cut of the money for you to be with my daughter this time. Because it kind of feels like he's like selling his daughter to these two guys. Yeah, it feels like she's sex slave at this point or something. And Tom Cruise is obviously horrified. You know, he's like, wait, you said you were going to call the police last time when I caught you or caught, you know, you caught your daughter with these men. Now they're back and he's suggesting very obviously that he could also pay to have sexual relations with his daughter. So, yeah, really screwed up. Really just random again. Just I was not expecting this movie to border on like some kind of like after hours just like from one thing to the next type of plot activity. You know what I mean? Where it almost like at times it almost could like dip into a farce or like even like an after hours, like eighties comedy or something where you're just like, Oh, it's one wacky night where we just keep running into like these strange (laughs) characters, you know, just like how you keep mentioning movies. I like a lot more than this one (laughs) after hours, masterpiece. Right, but you know, this time it's Kubrick and it's it's Tom Cruise and it's very serious. But and you know, like I said, there's times where it could like almost dip into being absurd or like I don't know, just too much. But for me, at least, it does like kind of walk that balance nicely and like holds things together. Where I'm like, oh, this is like an interesting, weird, like sidetrack into this character in this moment, and it it kind of speaks to the themes or it dances around like the same kind of like oddity and sexual nature of everything going on in this movie. So I liked this scene, I guess it's another presentation of sex being transactional in a way, which is yeah, something that he yeah. keeps coming back to over and over again, which I'm not yeah. sure if, if that's a theme other than saying, Hey, sometimes sex can be transactional, but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> I guess from the male perspective, like you said, Tom, in the beginning, asking for his wallet while his wife is undressing—like I—I uh, didn't think about that in that same respect. But yeah, it does that kind of foreshadow the sex as a transaction kind of thing with the prostitute and with the daughter of the costume shop guy here. So I don't know. We're talking it out here, right in front of you, listeners, right in front of your ears. Just gotta talk it out. Well, yes. So we go from that scene to the mansion scene with the orgy. So you've got masks, you've got cloaks, you've got naked women with masks and cloaks taking off their cloaks. <laughs> um, So Tom goes into this Bacchus orgy type scenario, and it's really strange. I was expecting this movie and I think it was marketed much more as, like, an erotic thriller, and you know, like scenes that are supposed to be very titillating and everything. But I don't know about you, I wouldn't call pretty much anything in this movie very titillating or very, like, sexy per se. You know, there's obviously a ton of nudity, but I don't know if that's necessarily what Kubrick is going for. More so, he's going for, yeah, you know, presenting the ideas of sex and the ideas of like marriage and fidelity versus promiscuity and everything. Like, I don't know. What, what did you think? Were you obviously at yeah, the, the younger version of Nick had to step out of the room for a while, but how did you feel about it this time? Well, the first time through, I was asleep by the time you get to the orgy scene. I did notice something this time, even though this film feels very secular and there's no overt religious elements as far as like talking about religion or bringing in religious themes it's Christmas time during this movie, which I think is another reason that you selected it. This should hopefully be releasing sometime around Christmas, this episode of film shake and every single interior up to this point in the film, there's a Christmas tree and he makes sure that Kubrick makes sure that you see that there's a Christmas tree. But when you get to this house, you actually have conifers. You have these little pines that could be Christmas trees right before you walk into the house outside the foyer, but they're not decorated. They're completely unadorned. So that made me wonder like, uh, is okay. (laughs) I'm about to just give two sides of the same coin here on my opinion on Kubrick. I might as well just get this out of the way now, rip the bandaid off. So part of me is like, okay, What kind of symbolism is the tree supposed to be then? Because he definitely makes a lot of effort to show you here are all these trees with Christmas lights. It's, uh, you know, all this artifice of the season here with this Christmas tree. But this scene is also a mirror of the party scene earlier where everyone is wearing clothing and flirting with each other. And sex is the subtext, but no one is wearing masks and people aren't publicly having sex in front of each other. Whereas with this scene, everyone is eventually wearing zero clothing, but wearing masks. So Mm. is the tree symbolism here where he's saying like, okay, the artifice is gone now. This is unadorned, true human nature. There are no lights on these trees. This is just pure pagan human nature. Right. And then the mask, is he trying to say like uh, the desires that everyone has, these are everyone's desires. Like these are anonymous desires. Like these are bodies with the faces covered up. Cause this is everyone. And is the opening ceremony like a mirror of, because there's an opening ceremony to the orgy where they take off their clothes uh, in a circle, which is weird. And they have all this backwards chanting. Yeah. Right. So I'm thinking about all this stuff. Like, what does this mean? But then Jordan, there's this other part of me. And I feel this way about a few of his other movies where I look for some, like a clockwork orange. I love that book. And that book has a very clear meaning where at the end of the book, in the English version of the book, the character who is the deviant, he comes to this realization on its own where he's like, I don't want to be like this anymore. So it shows you in the book, basically, he gets his treatment. And I'm sorry if listeners haven't seen A Clockwork Orange I can't even go into all the plot except to say that this really deviant guy is he undergoes this treatment by the government to basically take like all of his ability to like emotionally react to something away to make him nonviolent in the book. Basically, like that is as bad as him being freely deviant, him not being able to make a choice and he gets his ability to choose back. The book is just showing that it's far more powerful for a human being to choose to be good than it is for them to be forced by, like, a governing force to be good. But that is not in Stanley Kubrick's movie at all. There are some very conflicting things there where you kind of just wonder at the end, like, is he just saying all human beings suck? Like, (laughs) humans are just horrible? That's basically what he says in every movie of his, right? (laughs) Right. So here's what I wonder. I've talked to Kubrick people, and I go and read essays on the movies where I'm like, I don't feel like this actually has any meaning. And people write these really, really long essays citing all these sources like this is what it's about. But then it never really gets to what the movie's about. It's it's like in this movie, I read stuff and people are like, okay, there's a scene where Tom Cruise is in his office and there's a bookshelf behind him with 400 books. And if you zoom in on the image and use Microsoft Pixel, one of the books on the shelf is Donald Johnson's A Traveler's Guide to Arizona. And what is the capital of Arizona? (laughs) Phoenix. And what is a phoenix? A phoenix is a mythological creature that dies and is then reborn in the ashes. But a phoenix is also a bird. And what do birds do? They fly. So Kubrick is saying in the scene that Cruz's character is a wanderer who follows every flight of fancy. And I'm like, the hell he's saying that? Because there's a part of me that after I look at everything and try to find all this meaning, I'm thinking, he just liked the way that book looked on the shelf. Like, there's definitely a part of me that thinks Kubrick is 100% into aesthetics and meaning is secondary to where you can attach, like, almost any meaning or the opposite meaning of that into almost any moment from any movie he makes. Like, the dialogue is secondary, meaning is secondary, symbolism is uh, secondary, and I feel like Kubrick doesn't force or did not force Tom Cruise to walk through the same doorway 900 times over and over again for one shot in this movie, making him do take after take after take because he wanted to infuse that shot with the exact intended meaning. I feel like he just did that because he's a visual perfectionist and he had this image of, Cruz walking through a doorway in an extremely specific way. And he wouldn't let Tom Cruise stop stepping through that doorway until his camera captured that image exactly like it was in his head. So there's a part of me that thinks his movies seem so deep because he was so meticulous with them, but they're actually thematically shallow they're just so meticulously constructed that as a viewer you feel like there has to be a deeper meaning like this guy is a genius he's a god among right. filmmakers there has to be something beneath this meticulous construction but i feel like the aesthetic is the meaning and that's it right and i yeah. wonder i'm trying to find all this meaning in this orgy and in these trees and in all this stuff in this movie and in a clockwork orange and in the shining which i also have problems with i just wonder like what if There's nothing there. Like, what if it's not that, like, his theme is emptiness? It's just that it is empty. It's like the aesthetic is it. And I wonder that about this film very heavily. I think I agree with you in some respects where I see people trying to parse this out. They're like, what is the symbolism here? And what is the meaning and everything? And I do think that first and foremost, Kubrick is an, you know, an aesthetic guy. He's into the image. I wouldn't necessarily say for me that, like, that makes it less of a film you in know in, or like his you know his oeuvre is any like less of a legacy because okay like some people try and dig too deep into the meanings here and like it's more about the tone and the visuals and like the feeling of the piece you know whereas like i appreciate that i think in and of itself that's like a worthwhile thing and like that's what he was after was like a certain feeling, a certain look, a certain tone. And I feel like this movie does achieve that really well. Like it it captures a certain atmosphere and a certain tone like throughout. And that's like what he was so meticulous about capturing. Like I couldn't sit here and tell you like, what does the mask mean? What does the Christmas lights mean? Everything. I think it all, yeah, it all is just about like a certain image and a certain like feeling and tone that it gives this movie in this story, you know, like whereas like you said, it's a very like basic thematic story, you know, where he goes on this nightly escapade into darkness, you know, and then within that darkness and like the moral ambiguity and the jealousy that he's struggling with and everything, there's like yeah, just like a lot of weird shit that happens in this whole like (laughs) cloaked orgy and everything. But yeah, I mean, I do like the idea of this as like a dark mirror of the party scene in the beginning, like showing the true nature of, you know, the upper elite. The masks to me are just artifice, are just like hiding your identity. You know, of course, like we're in company with each other. We're all like naked doing like these, you know, crazy primal acts with each other but we still need some sort of cover you know some sort of like becoming anonymous and then and then later in this scene where he's found out as not belonging there and they demask him i felt like that had some meaning to it or had some weight to it where it's like oh like you've revealed who you truly are so i don't know like this whole scene to me was just like his darker nature like his it's kind of his true like primal self that he doesn't want to admit to. And then later at the end of the movie where the mask appears back on the bed and he breaks down crying and he says, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you everything. It's just like him finally coming to grips and like being honest with himself and being honest with his wife of like, this is what I've been through. This is like who I am. (laughs) I tried to say I wasn't flirting with those girls or that I wasn't going to have sex with them, but, Here's everything, you know, like this is actually who I really am. Yeah, and Cruz is amazing in that scene where he's oh, crying. He's so my good. My favorite scene. My favorite scene. It might be mine too, man. It might be mine too. Yeah. I don't want to like short shrift the orgy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you made a good point. Several good points in there where you were talking about it. I know that he said this was his most valuable contribution to cinema, and I'm sure like. Me and probably a lot of other people were like, well, thematically, what does that mean? But, you know, I think you have a point there. Like, maybe he just saw, like, this vibe and this aura that I want to confer here visually hasn't been done and needs to be, so this will be my most important contribution. Maybe that's all he meant. That might have been all he meant. right? Also, so this orgy scene, which was obviously a big deal at the time, it was forced to be edited so that they would not be stuck with a NC-17 rating. They had to put all these cgi inserts over private parts and things which you can watch the movie unedited now yeah roger ebert called it the austin powers edit (laughs) (laughs) because of the scene in austin powers where they like things are randomly popping up to hide his full frontal nudity right as well as elizabeth hurley's yeah yeah but (laughs) this scene Seems so tame and innocent now, Jordan, because the things that we know about what rich people really do at these parties, like with Epstein and all this other stuff where it's come out that, you know, what really rich people like to do, they're really actually bored of grown up orgies. They want to get with underage people, which is disgusting and horrible. And that's the true dark side. And that seems like it's only getting worse as uh, everyone is hyper stimulated. By online pornography and whatever else, so that it seems so quaint that oh, they're they're just having a soft core porn orgy. It's consenting <laughs> right. adults. Oh, it's so quaint, yeah. It's consenting adults. How fun. I mean, there's speedballs involved, a mask and weird stuff, I guess, to, to try and make it look more nasty than it is. But yeah, you're right. I, I think a lot of people, even in 1999, felt like it was tame. Yeah, it's very much like, again, if you were up late at night when you were a teenager in the 90s and you watch Red Shoe Diaries or something. I mean, it's those really exaggerated sexual motions where the private parts don't quite line up correctly as they would if people were really committing the act. And then the You're music. Right. So, you know, the soundtrack for this movie, it's done by Jocelyn who I think is really good. And that you've got a lot of other music, as you mentioned before, you even have Chris Isaac come in here with uh, they did a bad, bad thing, which was pretty funny. But yeah. that was really the <laughs> laugh out loud moment while they're uh, groping each other. Right. Right. I was like, wait, is this bad to the bone for a minute? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> the music and the orgy, even on the soundtrack, the track is called migrations. Cause you know, that everyone is migrating, having sex from one person to another person, but even the yeah. music with like the drums and the uh, chanting and stuff, ah, it was kind of yeah. goofy. Like I was cracking up yeah. a little bit. I'm not going to lie. And, you know, like again, going back to the tone, I feel like more than this being like shocking or titillating or, or, or crazy in any of those respects, there's definitely just this weird vibe about this place because of the, the masks and the way it's shot and the lighting and, you know, like all standing around in a circle naked with a mask on and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's tame compared to like any like illicit acts that it might present. It doesn't really do that, but there's definitely a strange aura about this place and just the tension of Tom Cruise being somewhere where he's not supposed to be, you know. I, I definitely felt that, and I felt like that's mainly what Kubrick was going for in this scene, where he's given the warning by one of the girls, you know, mysteriously. You're not supposed to be here. You're in grave danger, you know. All these things, and then finally he's found out. He's made to demask this red cloaked master of ceremonies, you know, in the midst of this dark circle. And then the woman who stands up at the balcony up top and the same woman who warned him says, I'll redeem him. She's going to sacrifice herself in some undisclosed way and let him off the hook with a warning. So like, there was definitely, again, a vibe and a tone here that I thought was striking. It just wasn't what it's built up to be as far as like this erotic thriller and this crazy orgy. It's much more about like, the weirdness of this secret society. I think I also wondered too, were we supposed to take this woman that stands up for him and, uh, takes his sacrifices herself for him? Is this the same woman that OD'd at the party at the beginning? Cause those boobs looked awful familiar. <laughs> That's what I took away from it. Uh, and piecing it together later. So, okay. So basically you're wondering who, who is this woman? And later he finds out that Nick the piano player has kind of disappeared. He go, he tracks him down at uh, his hotel and the desk clerk there played by Alan Cumming in a very funny way. And just very, you know, oddball way tells him this whole story about Nick showing up with these two kind of thug like guys. And he's got a bruise on his face and they escort him out of there. And he tries to slip him a note, but he can't. And then later he, he looks. It looks like he's being followed. He slips into a cafe and reads a newspaper, and he sees in the newspaper that a former beauty queen overdosed on drugs, named Amanda Curran. And he pieces that together, going to the hospital and seeing her. That this was Mandy, the woman he helped, who OD'd at the party in the beginning. And then they have like a voiceover as he's looking at her dead body about you might lose your life and I might lose mine or something like that. So it definitely seems to be like pinpointing at that moment that this is the woman that saved him at the party. And her reason for saving him was that he saved her from the drug overdose at the beginning of the movie. He does get out of the scene and he goes back home. And the rest of the movie, because that orgy kind of bisects it, the rest of it is like man, like, is he going to get murdered? Like he's getting stalked, like weird things are happening. He tries to go back to the house to try to investigate and he gets stopped at the gate, which, oh man, one Kubrick thing I really liked, which was a nice touch here when he originally goes to the orgy and he gets to the front gate of the house, which he gets a taxi driver to bring him there. But the two guys, the way that they're so proper and the way that they talk to him, it's really reminiscent of how Jack Nicholson has spoken to in the shining whenever uh he's talking to the bartender which it, yeah. it's actually extremely similar and again like i don't like the shining as a movie as much as the vast majority of people do but i did enjoy that in that parallel there but hey he's yeah. not at the party anymore i see i'm going back to the orgy damn it get me out of here <laughs> we just go home He wakes up his wife, Nicole Kidman, from a nightmare slash dream. She tearfully explains this uh, sexual dream she had of screwing the naval officer and many other men. And it's interesting when she says, my dream was so weird. And he's just laying there like kind of in complete shock and disheveled from his whole experience at the orgy. And laying there beside her on the bed, he's like, tell me, you know, you must tell me what, and I'm almost expecting her to like describe the orgy scene. Like there's these guys with masks and everybody was naked in a circle, you know, like that's not, (laughs) it's not really far off from what she does describe this weird dream that she had of screwing all these people. And she's so brokenhearted about it. We kind of just get that moment with her and then we're off back out into New York where he's kind of trying to piece all these things together. Avoiding his family again. Yeah. Yeah. Just let me get out of here. Yeah. He's, he's definitely avoiding them. He's like staying out late, kind of using his work as an excuse, of course, to pursue other trysts and trying to figure out like what happened to Nick. And then also being plagued by Alice's fantasy again. He tries to call the woman whose father died, Marion, but her boyfriend picks up. That doesn't work out. Goes to see Domino, the prostitute. She's not there. Another woman's there, tries to seduce him. But wait, you might have HIV because Domino now has HIV. <laughs> I like how he doesn't disclose like, oh, no, we didn't have sex. You know, like, so it's all good. We could we can still do do stuff here. But he's just like, oh, I guess I'll take this as an out and get out of here. <laughs> so, again, lack lacking any agency there, too. Man, I'm not going to lie to you. These are, to me, the least interesting scenes in the movie because he's kind of he basically retraces all his steps to no avail. It got a little tedious for me here. I mean, this is like almost a three hour long movie, but I feel like it really shows its length in these scenes. See, it's interesting. I never felt the length here. And I know a lot of people, especially when this came out, complain about the pacing and about the length and everything. But I, I guess it was just again, the the tone and the aesthetic of this like really pulled me in. And I was I just felt kind of mesmerized, like, let me just watch this unfold, like what is going to happen. And so just the te- even like the tediousness of like, he goes back to the club, and then the club is gated shut. So then he goes to a cafe next to the club, and then he talks to a waitress, and then she somehow he picks up that she knows Nick and she tells him how to get to his hotel. And then he goes and talks to the desk clerk, you know, it's like, all that is just very like, boom, boom, boom. Like matter of fact, there's nothing really like glamorous or dramatic about it, but there's just something about like that kind of sterile nature that Kubrick brings to things. That's uh, entrancing. Yeah. Teach his, yeah. <laughs> his own, I guess. Teach his own. I didn't feel that way at all. Well, we get to uh, Vic, back to Victor. So again, he's at the hospital, and he gets another phone call. He's brought back to Victor's house, and he's in the billiard room. There's the big confrontation where basically Victor tells him, "Hey, I was at the orgy too. I know everything that happened. I saw your face. I know you've been trying to track things down. What did you think about?" this really long scene one thing that i thought was pretty interesting maybe you notice this too is there are kind of some allusions to him being that red cloak grandmaster at the orgy because that guy the grandmaster at the orgy had this big stick and he kept tapping on the floor Uh, with it and he's got the billiard yeah right he has the pool stick i again Mm. like we can read too much into Kubrick, but I think that was intentional. I think he was trying to say like, maybe he's the boss of the whole thing. He definitely has the skeeziest sense of anyone we meet in the movie, except maybe the mask guy. Like there's a power to him. Like the way that yeah. he has the the woman upstairs. It's like, he's always doing these kinds of things. Like he's kind of like the person that I described now who would be like hyper desensitized to everything. He's so wealthy and he has so much power and Tom Cruise is just like a little peon on the outskirts of this that he kind of just humors because he's still human and he needs a doctor. I think he probably was the Grandmaster, and I like that element of the scene. There's not really a lot of depth to the dialogue as far as, at least to me, making you like think about anything on much of a deeper level outside of that. There was another party member at the orgy that he kind of connects with across the room, and it's a guy with like a gray like beaked face mask and just the something about the eyes there of that particular guy. We never see his face and it's never revealed who that is, but you know, he nods to Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise nods back and he sees him a couple times at the orgy, but I don't know. I just got the sense that that might've been Victor just, just based on the eyes and like the recognition of the character. And then at some point within this conversation, Victor is like, hey, if you if you knew like the people that were in that room, like some of the like some of the bad people that were involved, like you wouldn't be able to sleep at night kind of thing. So I got the sense like maybe he wasn't like the one in charge, but he's kind of been tasked with like basically trying to get Tom Cruise off of their tail at this point. Like, hey, get that guy to like calm down. Like, you know, scare him a little bit, that kind of thing. Yeah. And all that seems a little weird and incongruous to me, because it's like he was already like being so open about cheating on his wife at the party where he's got like a, a passed out prostitute upstairs. So it seems kind of weird to me that they're like, no one can know we have these sex orgies. Like, I don't know, man. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Was that just a matter of like necessity though? Like, ah, like I wouldn't normally bring you in on this doc, but this girl's going to die and that's going to look really bad. So like you get a little peek behind the curtain, but it's again, just this kind of further warning, but it's a little confused where at first he's like, yeah, there's bad guys involved. You don't want to know who, but then he's like, but it was all a charade. It was all to scare you. And he has kind of an explanation for, you know, Nick, no, they just put him on a plane back to Seattle and he's back banging Mrs. Nick. And I wish I thought was a funny line. But uh, and then, you know, the girl, she was already a drug addict. She just screwed her brains out at the party. But then like she went home, everything was fine and she died of a drug overdose. So it's just kind of like a little too clean cut, a little too coincidental that all that kind of wraps up nicely. But then you're still kind of left to wonder, like, well, that could be the case. Like, do we believe that this was all just a charade, or do, or is he just kind of like trying to cover up, basically? Which definitely feels like a cover up, but I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, it felt like a cover up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was interesting as far as like playing with again the idea of like what is real and what is fake, and like it's interesting. At the end, we have Nicole Kidman, who's basically just had all these dreams and fantasies about her affair, which wasn't real. And then Tom has gone through all these, you know, actual physical scenarios, but very dreamlike. And there's something like she says at the end where not one night is the whole truth of a person's reality. And then he says, and no dream is just a dream. So it's basically like, well, you like fantasizing about this guy that means something, but me like going to the sex orgy, ah, that's that's not so bad, you know, <laughs> or me like yeah. trying to have an affair with a prostitute, but I didn't really like, I guess they were on equal playing field, you know, because you're yeah. a man, you're a woman, and I'm a man, <laughs> like, right, <laughs> I don't know, felt like there was something a little like incongruous about that, yeah, the unreality of it all, too, just the fact that. You talked about her dream earlier where she literally dreamed his night. She was in his night with him while she was dreaming. Kind of adds to the, this is all just a dream or this, this isn't quite real feeling of the movie too. Yeah. So, hey, let's just attach that to the morals as well. For sure. So we're not sure if this was a charade or not. It definitely feels like a cover up, but he returns home. And this is where he sees the mask upon the pillow. Because he tried to, you know, return the costume earlier, but the mask was missing. And here we see the mask is revealed. And for me, you know, this is where he breaks down and cries. I'll tell you everything. Just his sobbing. I guess my favorite moment of the movie, and again, I feel like the mask here is just representing that darker side of of himself that he's tried to cover up, that he's just like Victor in that way, like trying to kind of like put a lid on it this whole time, not reveal this darker nature, this primal instinct to his wife. But in the end, you know, it, it comes forward and then he has to tell her everything. Or check this out. All that primal stuff and going into this orgy and all this other stuff actually isn't who he is at all. That's actually a mask that he's wearing. Like mm. deep down, he knows that his true nature is a- actually this domestic Tom Cruise, who is a respected doctor who loves his wife and his child. And the reason that he was never successful in his endeavors of cheating on his wife and the the reason that he had no agency in any of the situations he's been in is that it's just not who he is. And this mask Mm -hmm. is a mask hiding his true self, which is interesting that he would go on like what the next year or two and be in Vanilla Sky and have like a very similar mask, like a white mask. And he would put on there and the whole like identity and self and questions about personhood or, or brought up there too that is true and I, I actually thought of that too and i hate that movie i hate vanilla sky oh, and I, I'm love not a, I, I love vanilla yeah because again Cameron crow <laughs> can't stand him i don't like a single yeah. one of his movies but love you, Cameron crow. <laughs> you know what we just highlighted what i said earlier about how every single one of the scenes in every single kubrick movie you can take one way or the opposite way because we mm. both took the mask coming off in opposite ways yeah i like what you're saying there and it kind of goes with like his lack of agency throughout where, and he talks about early on in the movie too, when he's having that fight with his wife about like, well, men, you know, men are just like that. Like men are just like, you know, more promiscuous sexually or they're, you know, they're like horn dogs naturally kind of thing. And she's like, well, if you only knew about women too, but yeah, is that, is this whole charade with the orgy and going out, and trying to prove himself as a man, I guess, or get back his, at his wife, like by having these affairs and stuff. Is that all just a mask of like societal expectations and you know what masculinity is supposed to be? But yeah, in, in the end, it's not like something that he lives up to, I guess, or that is part of his true self. I don't know. Interesting. Or Kubrick saw that mask one day and was like, I need to get that mask in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was it. This mask looks cool. Yeah. This mask looks cool. I need to put this in a movie. I'm going to shoot this movie 400 days straight so we can get to that scene where the mask is on the bed because that'll look sweet. And everyone's going to be like, damn, that mask looks sweet. Damn, that mask is cool, bruh. (laughs) Don't you think, Vivian? Yeah, man. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So we get to the last scene in the movie. They're going Christmas shopping with their little girl. Well, one thing that really kind of bums me out is that, you know, he says, I'll tell you everything. We cut to a teary-eyed Kidman like later that morning. He's obviously told her whatever he's told her. But I really was kind of bummed that we don't get his confession. We don't actually hear like him describe what he's been through or you confess about his true nature or whatever M- again maybe that's to keep it ambiguous like what is you know the what is the reading of this like we were just talking about with the mask but i don't know we got her honesty at the beginning and i just felt like the natural track of this would be i'll tell you everything and then we get some sort of revelation through his confession like there could have been some meat there And then we just kind of skip over it. So I was a little bummed by that. Yeah. I feel you, man. (laughs) You're like, let's get this over with. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. My notes for this movie are so much more meticulous up until the orgy. And then it's like, I just went in, uh, I just went, you know, you left the room for 15 minutes. I left. Yeah. And and now I'm in, uh, now I've plateaued. You've climaxed early. (laughs) Right. Right. Now I'm flaccid. <laughs> Flaccid fur eyes wide wow. shut. Well, the Christmas shopping at the toy store, this is probably next to the scene with the woman and her on her deathbeds, probably one of my least favorite scenes. Just the way that it kind of wraps up a little too neatly. They're walking through the store, the girl walks off, and they're having this conversation where he's like, What should we do now? And Kidman is basically like, Well, we should be grateful. Should be grateful our love survived all these adventures. And, you know, the whole one night is not the whole truth kind of thing. And then he says, well, and no dream is just a dream. Again, the weirdness of the dialogue here a little bit, feeling the weight of all those takes, probably like, let's just get this done. Yeah. And he was like, I just want to see what Nicole Kidman's lips look like when she puts these particular syllables together. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Just the visual. doesn't matter what she's saying. But (laughs) um, the final word here where she says we have something very important we need to do. And he says, what? And she says, fuck. And then cut to black. That's the end of the movie. So what did you make of this, this final scene? Well, there's something to be said for them fi- being grateful that they have a relationship. Because, I mean, my 16-year anniversary is the day after my birthday. So that's in three days. And that is something, you know, you you get to points where you have fights about certain things. Or there are certain things that you want to change and about your relationship. And they just don't change. And it seems like there's nothing that you can do. But at a certain point, you have to kind of be grateful for what you have there that is good. And I thought that that was actually kind of a surprising moral moment in this film, which is also going back to other things that I've said about maybe like an aged Kubrick is seeing the value in a longstanding marriage and that relationship. And maybe maybe like he's not a complete nihilist, but (laughs) Right, you get to the last scene and that last moment, and again, I kind of feel like you just like that'd be cool if that was the last thing she said. Right, be cool to end this movie on fuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then I'll die. <laughs> That's what he thought, I'm sure. I mean, her saying we need to go fuck definitely encapsulates the rest of the movie as far as like its obsession with you know sex and sexual politics and marriage and fidelity and everything. I just feel like the morals here are tacked on a little bit. It just feels a little forced in a way to wrap it up this way. Yeah. And that Tom Cruise's character basically just kind of gets off scot-free. Yes, You know, like, he confesses and everything, like... I almost would have wanted just to end the movie where he's like, I'll tell you everything Ooh. cut to black. Oh yeah. And then the movie would have only been like two hours and 35 minutes long. <laughs> right. Just cut off some of those extra bits. We don't need that. <laughs> but you know, like almost just to end with that, like I've, I've come to the conclusion of like this dark night of the soul and like I've been revealed and let me just confess everything. Whereas, like, here he's like, well, what should we do? Oh, we should stay together. Everything's cool. No problem. Let's let's go fuck. <laughs> you know? So it's just like, uh, it's a little, little too easy for a guy who just, like, went and tried to pay for a hooker, like, the night before. Right. Like, feel like she would have been a little bit more mad. Maybe would have wanted to leave him. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I almost got AIDS. Like, in a real relationship. <laughs> right. Almost got AIDS, you know, like... Went to this crazy sex orgy, tried to hook up there multiple times, tried to hook up. I don't know. It just feels like, again, this is focused on the male perspective from the male character, but then wrapping up the movie this way and the morals it presents, it definitely feels like it's from a male perspective here too, where it's just like, Oh yeah, the woman will forgive you because like that's in her nature and like, and it's all good. Like we should just be grateful. Doesn't feel true to life. But, Jordan, this is the thing with every Kubrick movie for me. Nearly every movie, At 2001, I don't feel this way. And the other two movies I said, I don't necessarily feel this way. When you get to the end, it's like everything contradicts itself to where you're like, what just happened? And everything contradicting itself is like a false pretense for ponderousness because then you're like i must have missed something let me go back and watch this again so i can figure out why that was the last line but maybe like it shouldn't have been the last line maybe that was a misstep but again like the meticulous nature of the movie's construction and its visuals makes you just assume like that must have some deeper meaning that that's the last thing she said and again, I'm sure there are like 400 film essays about the ending of this movie that are like 10,000 <laughs> words each, where right. it's like, I don't really know if it warrants that. Yeah, I mean, I do like the last line of her saying like, this is something we need to do and that it's important. And it's like, okay, we need to, like we do need to go back and like use sex as a way to repair a marriage and like become close, you know, because I think that is like, That can be a a true thing. That can be a real thing. Right. And their lack of intimacy is highlighted at the beginning of the movie when he's ignoring her. Basically, like, yeah, we need to be intimate to like, like for the sake of our marriage, you know,
1: for the sake of my
0: marriage, we shall screw. No, but just the way that they get there feels a little too like quick and tidy. And I think if we hadn't cut over him confessing and having that conversation there maybe it would feel more warranted or maybe we should have just stopped at I'll tell you everything cut to black. Right. So Jordan, this really hasn't helped me come up with my score for the film very much because <laughs> right. honestly I was wavering between a five and a six out of 10. Ooh. yeah. I mean, it's a really long movie. It's, it's too really... long. Five out of 10. Right. Like a lot of Kubrick's really long movies by the end of the movie, I kind of feel like it's been, almost pointless like it's a zero-sum game but i do like some of the visuals here i think that cruise puts in a really great performance i do think that there are some valuable nuggets here about marriage or long-standing relationships but at the same time again like say a clockwork orange i feel like there's a lot of emptiness and there's just a nagging feeling in me that a a lot of the stuff here is done for aesthetic purposes and no deeper meaning So, I don't know, I I can't say that I overly enjoyed this movie, even it being from 99, like, maybe it's just him using that older film stock, it doesn't really look like a film from 1999, it doesn't have, like, that kind of classic 99 film grain, it's got, like, a different sort of grain to it, so I don't know, I I don't have a lot of affection for this movie overall, but I don't think it's, like, a horrible movie, I just don't really like it, so... Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to really exercise the full powers of my 10 point scale. I'm going to give this a 5.5. 5. There you go. I, I mean, I feel like all your points are valid. I wouldn't really disagree with that. I think, you know, like from where you're coming from, that's warranted. I think I do just like this movie overall better than you. I gave it a four and a half out of five. Like I said, I don't think like going back to the conversation about meaning and like the deeper themes and stuff. I don't think it loses a whole lot in that it's more interested in tone and aesthetic and imagery. I'm usually a fan of those kind of movies, you know, like Blade Runner 2049 comes to mind just as far as like this being probably too long, probably too verbose. But damn it, does it like look really good and it just like gives you a certain feel and tone to it. And that's not a perfect movie by any means. And there's honestly probably more thematic depth to that movie, which I didn't love a whole lot. But yeah, just as far as like the tone and the imagery goes, it really mesmerized me. And yeah, like you said, I do think there's like some nuggets and some interesting stuff that it makes you think about as far as like marriage and relationships and fidelity goes. So yeah, I'd say I like it a good bit. Um, Probably won't. It's not one I'm going to like jump at to rewatch A whole lot just based on its length and its content but um, i'm definitely glad that i saw it finally so four and a half out of five cool man it's interesting that you just made that comparison to villeneuve if i'm saying his name right which i'm sure i'm not but (laughs) i (laughs) I think you got it i think you got it right i probably like him a little more than kubrick but at the same time i have a lot of the same issues like really long ponderous movies where sometimes you're wondering like are the visuals just the point and that's it so yeah yeah, I think that's a pretty apt comparison I like Blade Runner 2049 enough I thought it was pretty good I mean it, it's not the original but I thought it was worthwhile yeah for sure so moving on to movie connection we're connecting Home Alone 2 Lost in New York to Eyes Wide Shut oh no What whatever shall we do Nick this is the easiest connection ever and I always take the easy way out I mean come right. on The subtitle of Home Alone 2 is Lost in New York. Tom Cruise is totally lost in New York in this movie. The difference being that the New York of Home Alone 2 feels like the real lived in New York City because it is. And there are people everywhere, even in the freezing snow, because there are in New York and there are no people in the New York streets of the London backlot set that this is filmed in. But still, uh, it is Tom Cruise being lost in New York. I mean, what if this movie was just called Tom Cruise Lost in New York instead of Eyes Wide Shut? (laughs) I think that would be rad. How about you? Do you have another connection besides that? Home Alone 3. (laughs) Eyes wide shut. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Only other thought would be John Hurd must have been one of the orgy guys uh, really going at it, right? (laughs) We discovered last trivia battle that, you know, I thought uh, J.T. Walsh was the skeezier guy in the skeezier movies, but it was always John Hurd. So. That's right. He fooled you. He fooled you being the home alone dad. But now you've got me thinking like, is Tom Cruise supposed to be Kevin McAllister of the future? Right. Cause like he, <laughs> he struggles from sort of similar issues in that he's not happy with what he has. Right. And not actually they're pretty different. They're, I think, <laughs> uh, I think Kevin McAllister is a better guy. One's blonde. Yeah. You know, one's dark haired. <laughs> Kevin no, McAllister is probably a better guy. Yeah. It's got more hot. It's got more New York hot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Moving on to the trivia battle. Hold it! Ah! Ah, pop quiz, hot shot. All right, Jordan. I'm I'm really excited about this battle. Again, I'm I'm trying to give you a great shot at winning. I'm not sure what you did though. What what was your Thank you, sir. What was your angle for this trivia battle? Well first I'm gonna try and do this all in a New York accent, you know, just in the spirit of the the true <laughs> and the fake New York from Home Alone Two and and Eyes Wide Shut. So I'm giving you Fred Willard's Magnificent Movie Trivia book once again. And uh, he's got a section on directors. And And uh, Stanley Kubrick was a director. So this this is a, a trivia battle about directors. <laughs> if you're really going to do that the whole time, I'd have to fall back to Arliss Loveless. <laughs> oh, no. John Courtney, my questions are simple. Sidney Pollack was a director of over twenty films. Jordan, oh, he shot it. these movies. <laughs> I'm gonna name five films. Were they Pollack? or not Pollack. Ah, uh, okay. Or they. I think you just dropped your New York accent. Oh no, I'm bringing up. Yeah. Interestingly, and wait, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm getting lost in the accents here. <laughs> okay, I'm just dropping it. Um. So interestingly enough, my first question is about Sidney Pollack. Shoot. So, uh, here we go. And you, since you've studied up on Sidney Pollock, you'll probably get this right now. <laughs> Maybe not. So, all right, Sidney Pollock won the Best Director Oscar for which film? Was it A, Tootsie, B, Out of Africa, C, The Way We Were, or D, Absence of Malice? I feel like Out of Africa won some awards it shouldn't have, so I'm going to guess Out of Africa. Out of Africa was nominated for... Seven total Oscars. And, oh, it won a total of seven Oscars. And, yes, it did win the Best Director Oscar for Sidney Pollock. Boom. 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 You got it. Straight out of the gate. All right. Here we go. Pollock or not Pollock. Jeremiah Johnson. Pollock or not Pollock? Not Pollock. Incorrect. That was directed by Sidney Pollock, my friend.
1: Damn it. I a 70s classic.
0: I thought Redford directed that, but uh, he was just starring in it, so correctamundo dang it okay i'm just gonna say straight up i knew you were gonna ask me about Sidney pollock because he's the more obscure person from this movie and i was like i need to study up on sydney pollock and i failed to do so (laughs) So oh man that's my bad (laughs) all right so my next question is who directed the beatles first motion picture a hard day's night from 1964 was it a stanley B, Tony Scott, C, Richard Lester, or D, Vincent Minnelli. Man, yeah, I saw that movie when I was a kid, but I don't remember the director's name. Now let's just say Stanley Donnan. It's either him or the D, Vincent guy. Wrong on both fronts. Oh. It was C, Richard Lester. Oh, dang, I didn't hear you say Richard Lester. That would have been my guess. <laughs> my bad. Well, I did say it, so you're bad for not listening. Right. I was probably thinking about Pollock. <laughs> probably so. Well, next question. The Pelican Brief. Pollock or not Pollock? Pollock. Incorrect, my friend. Damn it. He, he did <laughs> do a John Grishan <laughs> film. That was the firm. Uh oh, the firm. The, that's right. I think the Pelican brief was Schubacher. Oh, that's right. I knew that, damn it. I figured you did know it. I thought you were gonna go John Hurt on me and just they all be Pollock. <laughs> so I was like, let me let me guess Pollock. All right, next question. George Stevens won an Oscar for directing which 1956 film? Was that A, The Searchers, B, Giant, C, I Remember Mama, or D, Shane? I like three out of four of those movies a lot. Uh, I'm going to say Giant. You got it. Yes, yes. Featuring the third and final screen performance of James, James Dean. Dean. Yep. Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights. Pollock or not Pollock? Oh, man, that can't be Pollock, can it? Not Pollock. That's correct. He did direct okay. 1990s Havana, but he did not direct Dirty Dancing. Okay. Havana okay, Nights. Good, good, good. Oh, boy, I got one right. Nice work. All right. Let's see. Now, wait a minute. Which, so hmm? so you've gotten one right out of three. I've gotten two right out of three. So we're done, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're already done. We're done. Oh, I'm paying attention to that. When you actually beat me a few weeks ago, you beat me in that fashion. But we missed it. Specifically, I missed it. Oh, well. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. I lost. Inconceivable. <laughs> Inconceivable. I can't imagine how this could have happened. (laughs) What is our next movie? We're covering a romantic comedy. This is a request by our patrons, Neil and Jess, and it's a movie I've never even heard of. It's 1992's The Cutting Edge. Yes, ice skating movie, I believe. That's correct, that's correct, and I believe that we have a special guest for this episode. Yeah, so we'll have Jen from Every Rom-Com, another movie podcast covering mostly romantic comedies uh, she'll be coming on the show so really excited about that that'll be in january coming up so yeah cutting edge from what year is this 1992, 1992. 92. yeah 92 awesome well so what is my punishment going to be this time <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I definitely wasn't, since I had never even heard of the original The Cutting Edge movie. Oh, no. The sequel? Jordan, there are four Cutting Edge films. Oh, Lord. You can't punish me with all four. That's just wrong. No. You know I'll go and end up watching all four of them. Like, I, it's, it's pretty much... <laughs> A foregone conclusion, even though I wanted trivia as usual, I'll watch an entire series of punishment films for some reason. Damn masochist. Let's just start you off on the second film, Jordan. The <laughs> start of... me off. <laughs> so you're gearing me up for a race or something. <laughs> Let's go with 2006's the cutting edge, going for the gold. How did they wait to 2006? <laughs> <laughs> it's like 14 years. right? A monumental occasion. What's worse than Avatar? <laughs> that's right that was only 13 years cutting edge it took more time you had to get the cgi just right for cutting edge (laughs) for for all those ice skating scenes right when it premiered in march of 2006 on abc family hey that's a month before i got engaged speaking of marriage and then it premiered on dvd just a few weeks later and there's another movie called three ninjas high noon at mega mountain that hulk hogan is in <laughs> that was directed by Sean McNamara, and he's also the director of The Cutting Edge, Going for the Gold. So, if you want to watch Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain 2 as a bonus, feel free, my friend. Nice. I will. Uh, <laughs> Damn, I will does not that mean do, I have I will, to do that too? I will not do that. <laughs> I think I just accidentally slight myself into also watching that. Crap. <laughs> Man, sh- why does Sean McNamara sound familiar? A lot of sequels. <laughs> A lot of casper skills. a spirited beginning casper meets wendy into the blue two the reef <laughs> oh he did the brats movie jordan no not watching that either sorry nick oh he did he did baby geniuses and the treasures of egypt and oh. i know i know we've got some baby genius love coming up at some point <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i'd call it love <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself sir <laughs> I remember we just used to have the the poster of that, uh, like you know, you go to major video and they'd give you like the free posters. Nobody wanted. And I had a baby geniuses poster in my room for, for no good reason. And we would uh, we would like pretend to be babies and uh, just call it baby dumbasses. And I think we did like a, a skit where it was like ripping on the the movie baby geniuses. And we called it baby dumbasses. So. Brilliant. So, yeah. And on that note. <laughs> Brilliant. We're still almost an hour under the actual length of Eyes Wide Shut for our Eyes Wide Shut episode. Gotta keep it going for another 38 minutes. <laughs> we're almost there Uh oh, so close uh i feel like we could probably wrap it up i don't know we could probably cut all this out too. <laughs> um all right well yes that is the end of our show i'm speaking in stanley kubrick dialogue now uh <laughs> robotically <laughs> but yes thank you for listening to film shake the 90s movies podcast check us out Everywhere you can find your podcast, you can find us on social media at 90smoviespod, like on Twitter and Facebook. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash filmshake. Get bonus episodes and early access to our episodes for just $3 a month and support the show. And then, yes, you can email us, good old fashioned, just like our friend Sebastian, at FilmshakePodcast at gmail.com. All right. We'll catch you next time for more Film Chate. Take it easy. Maybe did a bad, bad thing. 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 You ever loved someone so much you thought your little heart was gonna break in two? I didn't think so. You ever try with all your heart and soul to get your lover back to you? Go on, oh, so. You ever pray with all your heart and soul just to walk away? Baby, the bad, bad thing. Baby, the bad, bad thing. Nicholas, what (laughs) is the password? (laughs) There is no password. Wrong, it's film (laughs) shake. Fail. Fail. I can't do that. Sorry, Dave. I can't do that. How does one take it easy? I'm trying to think of how to transition from to get out of the orgy, which you pretty much just <laughs> How do we get out of the orgy, to... Dick? Get, get me, out me out of this orgy! Here. Yeah. Arnold would be like, get me out of here! <laughs> yeah. If only we're Tom Cruise and just randomly got to, you know, interrupted.